Good morning. We are uh, going to continue our series this morning, uh, The Good News Apocalypse. And if you are joining us for the first time, uh, you're kind of coming right into the middle of a, a series that we're doing on the last book of the Bible, The Apocalypse of Jesus or The Revelation of Jesus. And uh, it's a significant book. Uh, there's a lot of different ideas about the book, there's a lot of confusion uh, about the book. And, uh, and I know, and I thought because we had the Mexico commissioning stuff this morning, we, we probably had some guests and families joining us. Um, so it might be hard to jump in in the middle of a series in the context. And, um, and so we're going to look at a theme in the book instead of uh, jumping right into, you know, the middle of the book where we are right now. Um, and we're going to look at one of the themes that's actually not in the book, but people think it's in the book. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but the word apocalypse means what? The unveiling. And so we often hear the word apocalypse. We think it's this terrible word that something uh, destructive and final and terrible is going to happen at the end of time. And we use the word uh, in a noun form like apocalypse, like it's going to be a bad thing, or apocalyptic in the verb form. Uh, But we assume it's destruction. We assume it's bad news. Uh, But apocalypse simply means unveiling. And when we read the Apocalypse of Jesus, which is the title of the last book of the Bible, we realize that the unveiling is actually not bad news. The unveiling is great news. The unveiling is good news. The unveiling shows up to a world, to a people that are wondering, where is justice? What is God doing? Is God not aware of the suffering and the heartbreak and the hardship that's happening in this world? And does he even care? And when we look at the unveiling, we see that Jesus does care deeply, that Jesus hasn't forgotten about us, that God is still in control, that Jesus is on the throne, and that he has a plan that he is allowing to take shape. And he gives us a hope for the future, but it's meant to anchor us in the present. And so last week we talked about the tribulation uh, and the, the tribulation is this word uh, in the Greek, it's thlipsis, uh, which simply means the pressure, the crushing pressure of uh, when two kingdoms are colliding, when two environments are colliding that are incompatible, there is pressure that is happening. And the tribulation that John is referring to isn't someday off in the future. And so when people talk about the end times, uh, they often talk about the tribulation as if it was someday far away. Uh, but we realize when we read the book of Revelation, when we read John, when we read the entire New Testament, that the tribulation, the struggle, the suffering uh, isn't something that's happening in the future. It's something that is happening. It's something that has been happening. Uh, the great tribulation is the time between when Jesus came and the time between and when he returns. Uh, we are in the middle of that tribulation, and we're in the middle of that pressure. Uh, and we read some statistics, I think in the first service, I didn't read them in the second service last week, but uh, some statistics about just uh, the horrific deaths and numbers of, of people dying through war and genocide and all sorts of horrible things going on in the world. And so when we read the book of Revelation, uh, it was given to the first century church for the things that they were going through as they were under the crushing pressure of Rome, but it's also given to encourage us who continue to be uh, in a time of, of pressure and suffering. And I think sometimes in the West we can forget um, that this is the story for the majority of the world, which is one of the reasons why we do the Mexico trip, why we do the El Salvador trip, is because uh, we are reminding ourselves and participating in a world that is is suffering and wrestling. uh, And it's good to be reminded 
about that. And some of you guys are quite inquisitive. And so you, you were listening last week and you're like, okay, if the tribulation is now and we're, uh, the church is constantly going through a time of suffering and hardship until the return of Jesus, uh, what does that mean about the end times? What does that mean about the rapture? Because I thought the tribulation was supposed to happen after the rapture. Uh, and we think the rapture is uh, this biblical idea. And so this is the theme that I want to talk about this morning is the rapture. Um, and the rapture uh, is a belief that at some point in the future, Jesus will return and take the church to be with him. And then after the rapture, there would be tribulation and the destruction of the earth and the judgment of the earth. Uh, and then people even go as far to identify themselves as pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. Uh, we won't get into any of those definitions, but uh, all those things that are basically talking about is God going to rescue the church from suffering uh, at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end of the time. Uh, and I actually debated whether or not even to talk about the rapture, because uh, to be honest, the rapture is not in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a theological system that we've actually imposed to help us under, to help some people understand the, the book of Revelation. In my opinion, it makes it more confusing. Uh, but uh, it's something that we've put on the book of Revelation, and it comes from a couple of texts uh, that are misread, which we'll look at in a second, that are outside of the book itself. Uh, and if the rapture was something that was going to happen, uh, why would we spend time building houses in Mexico? Why would we build houses? If the end is imminent, if God's going to come back and he's going to take us away to some other place and the world is going to be destroyed, why would we build houses? Why worry about social justice? Why worry about creation care? Why worry about global warming? Why worry about war and conflict? In fact, if this is an inevitable part of God bringing about the uh, you know, bad definition of apocalypse, that... Uh, he's going to bring an, an, a, this apocalyptic, horrific event that is going to end the world. So why would we even push back against conflict and war? And so the rapture, the belief in the rapture actually um, poses these questions that uh, we have to make sense of if we were actually true. Uh, and so rapture theology came about and popular, came about and was popularized in the 19th century. So it's a modern uh, belief system. It was initiated by John Darby and developed under the theological system that's often referred to as dispensational theology. You may or may not have heard of that, um, but even if you haven't heard of dispensational theology, its influence in the Western world, in particular the Western church, is significant. Um, and it's been significant in about the last 150 years. Uh, and so this uh, theology has kind of brought about this idea of at the end of time when the rapture happens, uh, will you be left behind or will you not be left, left behind? Uh, and that title or the, the idea of left behind comes from a Bible passage that we'll look at here in a little bit. Uh, and this was popularized through the series Left Behind uh, by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. How many of you guys have read those books? Don't be shy. You're like, is it okay if I put my hand? It's okay. Um, and uh, they continue to come out. The first book was published in 1995. And uh, these books are based on this theological idea of the rapture uh, and this idea about the end of time and God destroying the earth and taking his church um, with him and the fear of being left behind and missing out 
on, on that event. Uh, these books have also been made into movies, and so we have Kurt Cameron, we have Nicolas Cage, and most recently we have Kevin Sorbo that was uh, on these, in these movies, uh, acting in these movies, and the new title or the tagline for the new movie that just got released, check this out, says this, uh, left behind, the rise of the Antichrist based on a true story that hasn't happened yet. That's what the title of the movie says. I'm like, really? We're so certain, particularly, and again, this is a Western modern development of theology. We're so certain that this is the way the story ends that we can say this is based on a true story that hasn't happened yet. Now, I was too young to read the books or watch the movies when I was a kid, but if this theological system uh, was what I understood even as a little kid, and I don't even know where I learned it. It was just kind of an assumed thing that this is what was going to happen at the end of time. I remember being in the bargain store, um, which has now turned into a red apple. You know, every small town needs a red apple, right? Uh, and so I remember being in the red apple or the bargain store at the time, and I lost my mom. And I was like too too short to see over the aisles, right? And so, you know, you're this little kid in the in the, this aisle, and I looked everywhere, and I couldn't find my mom. I couldn't find my mom, and I was convinced the rapture happened, and I missed out. I somehow, I didn't check the boxes. And Jesus came, He took my parents, and now I got to figure out life by myself. <laughs> Terrifying. Uh, I mentioned this in the first the first week of the series, but I remember in junior high praying that Jesus would not come back, at least until I was old enough to have sex. That was the, my honest prayer as a junior high boy. Uh, and so I just had this thought that Jesus was going to come back. He was going to take us all away. Uh, and if we didn't get taken away, it was going to mean bad news. And so many of us grew up in this theological system, this, this idea, even if we didn't understand where it came from, and we assume the end of time was bad news. Um, and so what we're proposing in this series is that the, the apocalypse is good news. And that's what the whole theme of Revelation is. There's, there's hard things about it. There's hard things about our current reality and things that are still going to happen for sure. Uh, but the end of the story is a good news uh, story. Uh, but people in the last, like I said, 150 years, 200 years, uh, have been assuming all sorts of things about the end and getting it wrong. Uh, one of the more important end times movements in America began through the preaching of William Miller. After intensely studying Daniel and the book of Revelation, he, re- re- he reasoned uh, that according to Daniel 8.14, there were going to be 2,399 days from the decree to restore Jerusalem until the sanctuary will be cleansed. And if the decree to Jerusalem was given in 457 B.C., and if he could calculate that each day symbolized a year, as it did in Ezekiel 4, verse 6, then the consummation would come 2,300 years later in 1843 and 1844, somewhere in there. As time approached, thousands were attracted to this movement. Eventually, Miller refined his calculations, announcing that Christ's return would come between March 21st and March 20. Uh, 20- uh, March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. Uh, when the dates that Miller set didn't happen, uh, many of his followers were faced with disappointment. The movement's leaders acknowledged that they'd misunderstood the time, and then they recalculated again. It was going to be October 22nd, 1844. When this date also passed, 
many, pe many people left the movement. Others argued that the original date had been correct at the time of Christ's return, uh, but it wasn't uh, a physical return. It was, a, it was in a spiritual return, a spiritual sense, not a physical sense. And so there was a woman uh, named Ellen White who gathered a number of Miller's followers uh, and uh, adhered and believed that this was a spiritual return of Jesus. And that uh, group today continues to exist. That was the, the initiation of the group Seventh-day Adventists. In the decades that followed uh, the failed movement of Miller, new dates of the coming of Christ continue to be proposed one group in 1870 identified 1874 as the key date, but again, the year came and went without anything happening. A man named Charles Russell began popularizing the view that Christ returned spiritually in 1874, inaugurating a new millennial dawn period that would climax with the arrival of God's kingdom on earth by 1914. Russell spread his views by organizing the Bible studies and producing literature through the Watchtower Tract Society, Sensing the imminent coming of the end, he proclaimed that millions now living will never die. The outbreak of World War I in, uh, in 1914 generated excitement. This is important. Note. It generated excitement by those followers, uh, Russell's followers. Why? Because they believed that things had to get worse before Jesus came back. And so when things got worse, they were excited about it. World War I. In the decades that follow, his followers organized themselves as Jehovah's Witnesses, continuing to hold that 1914 had been a pivotal year in God's plans. Eventually, uh, there was another group uh, led by a guy named Vernon Howell, who called himself David Koresh, and he, can, he argued that many New Tef Testament references to the Christ and the return of Christ, return of Jesus, was not referring to the historical Jesus, but to a different Messiah, and then he uh, and then he revealed to everybody that he was that Messiah. <laughs> and so he gained a following, uh, and he cited Revelation 5 and Revelation 6, and he was the rider on the white horse. Uh, and there was, uh, you know, in his followers, there was polygamy, and there was child abuse, and there was horrific things that were happening uh, in that cult group. Um, and then uh, they came under attack from federal agents who raided his compound to arrest them, and then the Davidians, uh, which was what they were referred to, resisted, and then many people were uh, killed in a siege that was happening uh, at that point, and they were convinced that uh, them losing their lives was part of what the prophecy was about in, uh, in Revelation, uh, and they all kind of hunkered down um, and gave their lives, uh, and that's, that's part of the thing that happens when, when people believe these prophetic ideas about the future, um, they can interpret the current events to, to shape that story, and then they make terrible, um, unbiblical decisions. Um, there was, uh, in 1806, this is a funny one, uh, in 1806 in Leeds, England, uh, there appeared a hen that laid eggs and inscribed on the eggs that it was laying was the words, Christ is coming. Great numbers of people came to check out this hen and the eggs that they were laying. Uh, and many of them visited and began to despair because they, they believed that the judgment, of, uh, the judgment day was coming. It was soon discovered, however, that the eggs were not in fact prophetic messages, uh, but the work of their owner who had taken the eggs and wrote Christ is coming on the eggs and then put the eggs back into the chicken. Yeah. 
I have a few other examples, but I'm going to skip a couple. Um, there, you know, a more recent one was Y2K, the Millennium Bug. How many of you guys remember this one? Uh, the world was going to end in 2000, and this was more of a computer programming thing, uh, where when uh, there was only the number system went up to 99 or uh, 1,999 or whatever. So when it turned back to 2000, then everything uh, was going to go haywire and all the computers weren't going to work and planes were going to be crashing and the safety of weapon systems were going to uh, not be safe anymore and there was going to be all-consuming chaos on planet Earth. Um, and however, at midnight of Jan January 1st, 2000, do you guys remember that? You remember what happened at midnight on January 1st, 2000? Nothing. Nothing happened. The world celebrated the new year and no planes dropped from the sky. I can remember being at a New Year's party and being like, is this, is this actually going to happen right now? And then time just went on. Uh, I went on Wikipedia and I, I just looked at you know, the predictions of the end of the world and mostly by, uh, by Christian uh, movements. Uh, and there was over 130 predictions throughout history in different movements that have happened that haven't panned out. The very sad irony is that this is exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches us of what's going to happen in the end. I, I think the rapture thinking goes against the very biblical story, both in its beginning and its ending. Uh, and when believed, you have a group of people who literally are waiting for the world to fall apart, and in many cases, hoping and praying for that to happen. And so they end up hoping and praying for something that is completely contrary to God's will on earth. I can only assume that this makes Jesus very frustrated and disappointed. Uh, I read an article a couple years ago about a mom who went to Walmart to get a birthday cake for her daughter. So the daughter's name was Elizabeth, and uh, her nickname was Lizard. Uh, so her parents called her Lizard, and so uh, they phoned Walmart and they asked the, them to make a cake that said, Happy Birthday Lizard. Uh, and so the mom went and got the cake and paid for it and then brought it back home for the birthday party. Uh, and then Lizard, uh, you know, was brought the cake and it said, Happy Birthday Loser. <laughs> That's an awfully tough message to hear at your second birthday party. Uh, loser. My parents think I'm a loser. You know, the Walmart employee obviously didn't hear what was being said correctly. You know, I just, I just wonder if this whole rapture thing is a similar facepalm moment for Jesus where he's like, that is not what I said. That's not what I said. So let's just look at what the Bible actually says. There are only two passages in all the Bible that get misread and have been a source of all kinds of wonky ideas, predictions, and conspiracy theories uh, and the truth is, when we read a text, we've got to read it in its context. And we've been talking about the importance of that, even as we've gone through the book of Revelation, uh, because not to do so is to invite a whole bunch of uh, confusion. Uh, I think the hard work of doing that has left people looking for answers to what the book means, and then they read a left-behind book, and they're like, oh, that's what it means. Okay, I'll just believe the book. Um, but we actually have to do the work of looking at uh, the biblical text itself, because a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever we want it to mean. A text without a context is just a pretext for whatever we want it to mean. In other words, we start to read into the Bible what we want it to say instead of allowing it to say what it actually does say. Um, and so the two texts 
where this rapture idea kind of came out of um, are Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Luke 21. It's the same conversation in the three Gospels. Um, you can read, read the same conversation in each of those chapters in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, so the, the references to the people of God uh, being taken and some people being left behind and meeting the Lord in the air, uh, those references come from these two chapters. And we're going to look at the first uh, reference first because it's the most uh, probably difficult and complex one uh, to understand. Uh, and the reason that it's complex is because Jesus is talking about two distinct events, and these events may or may not be uh, the same event. Again, the reason that this is complex is because Jesus is talking about two events that may or may not be the exact same event. Uh, and so the, how this text gets read can be very confusing because we're, we're like, what event is it referring to and which one is Jesus talking about? And we'll realize at the end that Jesus doesn't even know for sure. And that's why it can be confusing. Um, so uh, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Um, and so they were talking about the building and the, the majesty and the greatness of the temple. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So there's two questions. When will this happen? When will this event where the temple is going to collapse happen? And the second question, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So it's important to know that these are two separate questions that are being talked about. Jesus goes on after they ask this question to talk about wars and rumors of wars and suffering that's going to take place. And in the middle of even that dialogue, he makes the comment, uh, but all of this is only f f the first of the birth pains with more to come. So Jesus doesn't deny that there's going to be suffering and hardship throughout history. And that is what we read in Revelation that we continue to experience hardship. Jesus refers to these things as birth pains, which I think is a really helpful metaphor when we, when we talk about suffering and how do we understand hardship. When we think of birth pains, um, if you've experienced it, you would know. I mean, I don't know. Um, I experienced kidney stones, uh, which I remember the doctor telling me, you know, th they say this is just as painful as giving birth. And I remember looking at Lisa and being like, ah, it's just, no, she, she wasn't having any of it. But anyways, the birth pains is is a beautiful picture and an honest picture because we can see uh, that people choose to endure birth pains because of the promise and the hope of new life. And this is what Jesus is, is saying when he talks about the hardships and the, the wars and the struggling and the, the, the pressure uh, that the church is going to be under. Uh, he said, this is the first out of many, and this will continue to happen. Uh, and they're like birth pains because God is birthing a new world. He's renewing the world. We're going to come back to this idea in a second. Um, but there is good news at the end of this. And in some way, what is currently happening is a part of that process to move towards that end. Um, and so the disciples are you know, looking and they're asking, when are these going to happen? He said, 
There's going to be a lot of hard stuff that happens, and this is just the, the beginning. Don't be alarmed. Is this the end of the world? When we see these things, Jesus' answer is no. It's not the end of the world. These are birth pains. And he even goes on later to say these are, uh, there will be these things, but don't think of them as signs. In fact, in Mark 13, particularly, Jesus is talking about the hardships and the things that are going to happen in this world and that they aren't signs. He's speaking against sign-seeking. Um, these are birth pains that are part of the labor to deliver a new kind of world which will come about. Um, and then Jesus says this, referring to some of the events that are happening. He says, truly, I tell you this, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. Jesus is very clear. When he's talking about uh, what was going to happen, there was going to be an event in their lifetime, in this generation, and people, um, you go and take that symbolically, but Jesus being very little here, to his audience, in this generation, this is going to happen. And that did happen within the generation. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Not one stone remained on another. There was horrific events that happened. There was earthquakes. There was, uh, there was terrible events. He's talking about this moment in 70 AD, and we can actually read about it with the historian Josephus, about the terrible tale of the siege of Jerusalem. People were starved. People ate their own babies to even stay alive. People were fighting each other for small-scale political gains. Uh, more Jews were being killed by other Jews than even by the Romans. Uh, there was uh, horrific events that happened in 70 AD, and Jesus talks about these things specifically when his disciples ask him, when are these things going to happen? So he answers the first question. But remember, there's a second question. What will be the sign that it'll be the end of the age and the coming of the Son of Man? Jesus says this, however, read those yellow words for me. No one knows the day or hour. Let's read that one more time. No one knows the day or hour. So this is very clear in my mind. Um, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. So Jesus himself said he doesn't know the day or hour when he's going to return and bring this part of history to its conclusion. He didn't know. And then I scratch my head and I think about history and I think about all the, the Christians through the years that are predicting as if they know the day or the hour. I'm like, you, you know something Jesus doesn't? What am I missing here? No one knows the day or hour when these things are going to happen. So Jesus says, yes, the destruction of the temple, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen within your lifetime, and there's going to be even terrible things that happen after that throughout history, yes. But that event you're going to experience. And Jesus says, the coming, uh, when, when I come back, when is that going to happen? I actually don't know. It may or may not be at the same time as the first event. It may be at some other point, but Jesus says, I don't know. And then he goes on, he says, As it was in the day of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and then they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So he's answering the second question. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken, the other left, left behind. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other left. Now Jesus says that this, when the Son of Man comes, it will be like in the days of Noah. And if you go back in the book of Genesis and you read about the flood of Noah, you know, what happened in the, the story of Noah? 
The earth had gotten so corrupt, so evil, that God wanted to restart his creation project. And so he brought this judgment flood, this chaotic flood that took people away. And who went away in the flood of Noah? The good people or the bad people? Let's be very simple here. The bad people. Who remained? Noah and his family. Jesus says, it'll be like in the days of Noah. And so he's describing this this event where chaos, destruction, evil will be taken away from the earth. And so it's actually the exact opposite of the rapture that people think. And so they, they read that into this text, Jesus is going to take away his people. No, that's not what it's actually saying. Jesus is going to rid the earth of everything that doesn't line up uh, with his kingdom. Every evil, every sin, the world's going to get, we're going to be rid of it. Now, this is what it says in Revelation 11, coming back to the book we've been studying, the time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for, what does it say? Destroying those who destroy the earth. Something very similar said in Revelation eleven fifteen: 15, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So this, we see right in the middle of the book of Revelation, we'll see it at the end of Revelation, that God renews the world. That God removes everything that is a part of destroying the world. He takes it away and somehow renews and restores that which is broken. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. He's destroying those who destroy the earth. So it'll be like in the days of Noah, when he's going to renew this creation project. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And the word that's translated coming here is significant, which is the word that's used um, referring to the second coming of Jesus in the Bible. And we'll talk about that now because it shows up in the second misread passage. So we looked at the first one, uh, those three references in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, that, are talk- that are about Jesus' conversation with his disciples. Right? He's answering two questions, one about the destruction of the temple that was going to be in 70 AD, one about the coming of the Son of Man that was going to happen some point in the future, a day which he doesn't know about, but when it does happen, that event is going to be about the renewal of the earth, not the destruction of the earth. Now we get to 1 Thessalonians. It says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So this is the second passage that often gets misread. Um, and we have this rapture kind of theology thought that we get gets imposed on it, um, but that is not what the text is saying. Uh, even though there's you, you see some similar images here, uh, but what is the text actually talking about? Well, the word coming, which we see here in the text, we see in uh, in Matthew the Matthew twenty four text as well is the same word. It's the Greek word parousia. Everybody say parousia. 
So parousia, and this is well recognized by New Testament scholars, so this isn't, this isn't Matt just telling you what I think. This is what the actual historical meaning of the word parousia means. Um, it was used to describe the meeting, or the arrival, I should say, the arrival of a, of a king, of a dignitary, into one of his cities. And so maybe the, the king was visiting, maybe the king was off to war, but uh, the king or Caesar or whoever's being thought of or referred to uh, would be coming to visit one of his cities. Uh, and, uh, and the Perusia in, an ancient, in ancient times was a matter of a great celebration with much ceremony. And, and the reference here is uh, where the people of the city would actually go out and meet the coming dignitary, the coming king, the coming Caesar, and usher them and welcome them into their city. That's what the, that's what the word perusia refers to. This is also strengthened by the word meet. Um, sorry to get nerdy here, but these things, these things really do matter. Um, and meet is the Greek word ampetesis, uh, which is talking about a similar event. Uh, it's a technical term for a civic custom uh, where a public welcome was uh, outside of a city, which was meant for the people of the city to meet the dignitary and then bring them back into their city. And we see this type of activity in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, we talk about that on Palm Sunday, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. Um, when Jesus was going into Jerusalem, the people went out to meet Jesus and then usher him into Jerusalem. And it actually uses the same word. It says, people took branches of palm trees and went out to apentesis him, to meet him, acclaiming king of Israel and then bringing him into Jerusalem. We can see the same word being used um, in uh, Jesus' parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, uh, where the, the virgins go out to meet their bridegroom uh, and they're waiting for him to come and then they go out to meet him. It's the same word. Um, and then they're escorted into the wedding banquet. Paul uses the same word when he was on a trip to Rome. Um, and the believers from there, it says, when they heard of us came as far as to the forum of Appius and the three taverns to apetesis us, to meet us. So Paul uses this word to say, when we were coming to visit, the people of Rome actually came this far to meet us and then welcome us and bring us back to Rome. The most important point in the above scenario is that those who went out to meet the dignitary, the king, the Caesar, whoever they're referring to, uh, escorted him in a procession back to their city. So when it talks about going to meet the Lord, the parousia, the coming of the Lord, so there's two sides, the Jesus coming and also us going to meet him, both are referring to the same type of event where the people in the city go and they're, they're, first of all, they're waiting. They're waiting for the arrival of this person to come. And when they see that he's coming, they go out and they meet him and they bring him to the city, to his city. This is a very different picture than the rapture of us meeting the Lord in the air and then him taking us in some spiritual disembodied state to some unphysical world. That's actually not what the Bible talks about. The Bible is very physical. The Bible is very creation affirming. Right from the very beginning of the text, the biblical text to the end of the biblical text, uh, creation is good. Revelation 1 and 2, we see this picture of shalom where God created all things to work properly together. 
God with humans, humans with themselves, being secure in their identity and relationships with each other and the world. And God gave them a place in this world. And he said that it was very good. Revelation 21 and 22, you go to the bookends of the biblical story. And what do we see? We see a picture of Shalom, God coming to be with his people on earth. The new Jerusalem, every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping him. No more tears, no more suffering. A perfect picture of shalom, where the story begins, where the story ends. And somehow in the middle, we've thought that God's plan was to take us away and to blow everything up. And when you get to the end of the biblical story, in Revelation 21, my remote works. I may have to get you to switch to the next slide. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared the sea, and the sea was gone. So start with the sea really quickly. The sea represents what, if you remember? Chaos. Everything trying to undo creation. Evil, the unknown. God brings order out of chaos in, in the creation account. And then we see at the end of the picture, it's not that there's literally no sea, it's that God has removed anything chaos, anything that is attempting to destroy what he has created. And so the, there's no sea, there's no chaos. And then uh, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth that disappear. And the, there's two words that are used for new in the Greek language. Uh, naos, which signica- signifies that something that was not there before, it was brand spanking new. Naos. Everybody say naos. You went and got a new shiny thing and it was like, this is brand spanking new. And everybody's like, oh, that looks really nice. Like when I get new clothes, like I, I got these shoes a couple weeks ago. Um, I walk into the office. The first person that comments on my new clothes is Colton every single time. He says, oh, you got a new hoodie. You got new shoes. You got new. He always notices when I got new stuff. Um, it's new. It's shiny. I never had it before. That's what naos means. But there's another word that's being used, kynos. And that is what is renewed, what has been made new. Different from the usual impressive way that we understood it, and it's actually been made better. It's been renewed, kainos, made like new again. And so in Revelation 21, guess which word it is? Naos or kainos? Kainos. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What is being seen is not some different world than, that's all that different than what we know of it. It's different in the sense that it's been renewed. It's been remade. It's not that dissimilar to when Jesus was resurrected and his, he had a physical body that looked like his other body, but it was different. The disciples recognized him, but they didn't immediately recognize him. He had scars in his hands um, that were marks from his crucifixion. And so there was something resembling his former life, but in some way it had been, re, it had been remade. Um, and so we can only speculate to what that, what that means and what that looks like. Uh, but this is the word that's being referred to, that the new heavens and the new earth, it's a renewed heaven. It's a renewed earth. It's things being made new, being restored. It's the things that have been corrupted, the things that have been broken, the things that have been destroying the earth, that those things have been taken away. Anybody who has participated in those activities has, has been taken out of the picture. That's what we see at the end of Revelation. And so we see at the end of Revelation, again, this picture of shalom. Not God blowing everything up that he started. It's actually God fulfilling everything that he began in the beginning. Restoring that which was old. Renewing 
And so that brings us to the question of why do we go and build houses in Mexico? And if you come from a rapture paradigm, you think, well, it's a nice thing to do, but it's actually not that important to do because it doesn't really matter in the end anyways, which you know, I know many people that think that way. Why do we partner with partners ministry? Um, why do we partner with shelter ministries or more ministries, these other ministries that are actually a part of dealing with social injustices, helping the poor, providing for physical needs? This is the reason why. Because as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are actually called to live from the future. If the future world has no more war in it, we are called to live without war today. If the future war has no more poverty in it, we are called to live in a way to remove poverty today. If the future world has every tribe, tongue, and nation living in unity, we're called to strive to live that way today and to get rid of racism today. If the future world has Jesus, the Lord of Lords, as the center of the universe, we are called to make him famous and put him at the center of our lives today. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. What we believe about the end matters. Uh, and I, am, I'm sorry, I know that's, that many of us, me included, probably came to faith and followed Jesus because we believed in a type of rapture theology, and we came to Jesus out of fear of not wanting to be left behind. And I think fear... There's, a fear is an appropriate meta, uh, a motivator. There's times where we are appropriately moved by fear. Uh, but I think as we read the biblical story, not only should we mo- be motivated by fear, but we should actually be motivated by hope. We should be motivated by the biblical vision of shalom. We should be motivated by partnering with God today and what he's trying to do in the world. For whatever reason, God is allowing history to unfold. And we talked about this last week, and there's a mystery to that that we don't understand. But we don't need to understand that to do what our job is. And our job is to co-partner with him and to be his ambassadors today, believing that he's going to show up, renew everything that's been wronged, destroy everything that's destroying the earth, to restore that which needs to be restored, so that the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of our Lord. And so we build houses today because when we think of the future of the heavens and the earth, we see that there's no more tears, there's no more suffering, there's no more poverty, there's no more racism, there's no more injustice, and we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God today. So we get to represent Jesus wherever we are, living from the future today. I'm going to invite you to stand uh, with me Um, I believe that the apocalypse is good news Uh, I believe that when Jesus returns uh, that he's going to make everything new that he will be all in all that he'll be king of kings he'll be lord of lords that everything that needs to be renewed will be renewed that everything that has contributed to the destruction of people's lives in this world will be taken away, that there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow. And in Romans we read that even creation is groaning and longing for this event to happen. The Bible talks about creation longing for this to happen, creation praising God, 
waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, to step up and to be his ambassadors. Jesus isn't going to come back and destroy the world and take us away. He's going to come back and destroy evil and restore and renew his creation. The return of Jesus doesn't mean destruction, but renewal. It's not about death, but life. And in between, the suffering is actually about birth, not death. It's not about an ending, it's about a beginning. And so when Jesus returns and you've placed your faith in him, here's the truth, is that you will be left behind. And that's good news. So Father, we thank you that you are a good God, that you start what you finish. We thank you that we've been invited to partner with you to be your ambassadors today. Lord, we thank you that you are coming again and that this is good news for the world. This is good news for everybody who's experienced suffering and injustice. Lord, that you are coming to make things right. And Lord, we give our lives to you to live from the future today. In Jesus' name. to see people guide into a lifelong authentic relationship with Jesus, our vision, because uh, we believe that if people do that, what happens is shalom breakers become shalom makers. Uh, and that's the journey that God invites us to, is to move from being people that are working against what he's trying to do in our lives and in the world, and then being transformed by the power of the gospel because of Jesus' death and resurrection and the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives, to partner with him in what he wants to do in our lives and in the world. And yes, that means things like building houses and working against injustice, but it also means introducing people to the saving relationship that they could have with Jesus, making shalom with God. It means speaking identity into people that don't know who they are, shalom with self. It means working to manage conflict between human beings, shalom with others, and obviously working against injustices in the world and, and stewarding the world that God has put us here to take care of. Um, and so we invite you to that journey of transformation. Uh, and at different seasons, it looked like different things. Uh, and uh, we're excited uh, to go to Mexico to be a part of that bigger story. Uh, and thank you for praying with us and supporting us uh, as we go down. And I'm excited to get the opportunity to go down uh, again uh, with those going. Um, as was mentioned earlier, we have Chiros. Chiros. I got to work on my... Uh, Got a one week here to get my R's going. Cheros, uh, on my right and your left will line up here on the side. Uh, I was told there's a limited number, and so if you really, really, really want one, make sure you get to the front of the line. Uh, if you're okay, maybe not to get one, you can go to the back. Uh, but I think they got about 150 or so, somewhere in there. Uh, if you'd like prayer for anything, we're going to have prayer teams available to my left and your right. Uh, we'd love to pray for you uh, about whatever God might be putting on your heart. Uh, let me bless you. And, uh, and yeah, we can eat chitros together. Lord, thank you. 
uh, thank you again uh, that you are good, that you are in control, and that you have told us how the story ends, and you invite us to live in the present in light of the ending. Um, and Lord, we get a very practical opportunity uh, for some of us next week to do that. You know, we continue to pray for safety for those going down. We pray for people to encounter you. Uh, we pray that these families would be blessed and feel uh, like uh, not just by our hands, but they would sense that God has heard their prayers. Uh, and we thank you that we get to be a part of your answer to those prayers. Uh, and Lord, I thank you that you invite us to be a part of this shalom-making story. And I pray that you would show each of us uh, what that might mean in our current context. Uh, but Lord, we know that there's work to do. And we thank you that you have called us to a work, a good work that's worthy of giving our lives for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.